Hey, it's time for .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers. I'm your host in New London, Connecticut, Carl Franklin, one more time here. Uh, Mark Dunn is on hiatus today. He is teaching a class and not available, so uh, I'm going to have to do it solo this time. I'm sure you won't mind. Uh, Mark will be back next week. So before I introduce my guest, I was uh, perusing the internet and looking for a good .NET story to talk about uh, before the show starts. And I found at the Microsoft.net website um, a case study that involves one of the regional directors, John Rauschenberger. Uh, and this was Bear Stearns and Company, that they extended their stock order functionality with web services. And uh, here's, the, here's the quote from the page, and I have a link to the page on, on our website. It says, a leading investment banking and securities firm, Bear Stearns, needed to extend stock order processing functionality residing on an AS400 to its developers. Access to this functionality is critical in the development of the client applications that employees use to conduct their daily business. Bear Stearns extends applications to external clients as well. Using Microsoft Visual Studio.net and the .NET framework, the company built and deployed a set of XML web services that provide an easy way for Bear Stearns developers to produce powerful value-adding applications. With the Microsoft.NET framework, Bear Stearns has exceeded its performance goals, increased developer productivity, and built a solution that adheres to Internet protocols and standards. In addition, the company saved an estimated $250,000 over alternative solutions. And this is exactly the drum that I've been beating here on .NET Rocks and Mark and I have been talking about with all these guests. If you go back and listen to the rest of these shows in the archives, you'll hear over and over again that uh, embracing .NET is all about productivity. It's about saving time. It's about saving money. And it's about leverage and leveraging stuff that's already done. And it's also about fixing the problems with Windows, which we've gone into ad nauseum. Um, some facts here about this, uh, and John Rauschenberger has a quote and, uh, in here. He's uh, one of the regional directors. He says, uh, the flexibility of ASP.NET was key to meeting Bear Stearns' performance goals. Quote, we needed fine-grained control over how the engine processed inbound SOAP requests to ensure that they were handled in the most, most efficient manner possible. End quote, says John Rauschenberger, engagement director at Clarity Consulting. Quote, we did not want to parse the entire message. Rather, we wanted the body of the requests passed into our code without being parsed. The XML services engine allowed us to do this and helped us exceed our performance goals. So uh, here's a real-world situation in which some uh, real-time money was saved using an embracing.net with a real company, uh, you know, hallelujah, and uh, using one of, our, one of our own regional directors here as uh, one of the consultants. Uh, the number of developers that it took to build the XML web services, six. A number of months to build the web services, four. Number of users and transactions per day for the order processing system, approximately 3,000 plus users and 250,000 plus transactions. Uh, metrics, performance metrics for the order processing system approximately are 300 requests per second. And the amount of money saved on initial development is two hundred and fifty grand. Good stuff. Good stuff. And we have a we have a link to this uh, case study, which was posted January thirtieth, two thousand three, on .NET Rocks webpage. Anyway, my guest tonight is none other than Andrew Brust, the president of Progressive Systems Consulting, and that is a Manhattan-based company specializing in the development of and developer training in custom applications using .NET, SQL Server, and other Microsoft technologies. He is also regional director, uh, MSDN regional director for New York and New Jersey. Uh, he shares that position with Stephen Forte, who we had on recently. He's also a contributing editor to Visual Studio Magazine and a regular highly rated speaker at VS Live and other conferences throughout the U.S. and internationally. Andrew has over 15 years of experience programming, probably more by now, and consulting in the financial, public, small business, and not-for-profit sectors. Mr. Brust is a vice chairman of the New York Software Industry Association Board. Geez, uh, that's quite a, quite a resume. Many hats. Many hats. I'm start I used to be the young guy. Now I'm starting to... 
starting to get old. <laughs> so welcome. Thank you very much. How's it going in New York? It's going all right. It's going all right. Uh, nasty night outside, but otherwise things are just fine. So we're not going to hear any uh, sirens or anything going off? Well, we'll see what happens. Yeah. You know, I, I remember um, uh, on that dreaded day in September when uh, you know New York was attacked, I, I remember getting in touch with you almost immediately and, and asking if you were okay. As I didn't know where you worked or where uh, you know what part of Manhattan you were in. I remember that uh, email coming in on my BlackBerry, as a matter of fact. Yeah, it's a good thing that you were safe. So, what's it like being in New York these days? Uh, it's you know, it's pretty much like any other time. I think everybody's, uh, especially with world events being what they are, people are just a tad more cautious. Um, if anything. Uh, you end up feeling safer here than you used to just because uh, the governor has taken events so seriously that right. there's, there's actually armed uh, troopers and and, uh, and guardsmen right. on the public transportation and so forth. That's so pretty cool. That's a new experience. But They used to have guys like that in Boston when I went to Berkeley, but um, they were, uh, you know, low-paid security guards, rent-a-cop kind of guys, uh-huh. <laughs> kind of guys that would fall asleep in the corner on the bus, you know, and... Uh, People would pee on them, basically. (laughs) (laughs) That's been known to happen on the New York City subway, but I don't think it's going to happen to the uh, armed National Guardsmen. Yeah, I don't think so. Just the gas. Just the gas. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So um, you have been historically involved in uh, database programming and talking about database programming throughout the years. I remember seeing you at a V-Bits early, early on and talking about uh, probably RDO was when you started uh, coming on the scene. Maybe actually, my first uh, my first appearance uh, had to do with a with a cover story that I wrote for Visual Basic Programmers Journal, what was then Visual Basic Programmers Journal, and that sort of became my first VBits talk too, which was tuning the jet engine. So ah. before RDO, before uh, RDO. So you're talking DAO. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. And, and back then we were talking about editing any files and doing things to make the jet engine perform a little better. Right. So uh, little did was, we know that any files were the way to go. <laughs> they, any files are back. They just end in .xml instead of dot, instead of .ini. Right. Right. <laughs> so any of you guys who said I don't want to put stuff in the registry, that's dumb. You uh-huh. were actually pretty smart. You know, right. we we were wrong. Um. So then you obviously got got quite into ADO. When that came out, and RDO as well, and did a lot of talks about it. Now you see, seem to have a very good way of simplifying uh, complex things, especially things that people were talking about, but nobody ever had code to do. You were doing it. I remember reading something about uh, passing XML uh, through the browser back before, way before .NET, back in the days of ADO to an ASP page which would then save it in SQL Server or something. I can't I can't exactly remember what it was. But it was basically a web service. Yeah, no, you've got it about right. There were there were capabilities in, in classic ADO to wrap record sets up as XML and send them across tiers just using HTTP as the transport protocol. Right. Um, and believe it or not, you can still do similar stuff with ADO.net and not even have to use SOAP and web services if if you prefer not to. So, True. Yeah, I'm always interested in sort of figuring out those little nooks and crannies. And um, uh, my approach to coding, I, I think usually I start out feeling a little intimidated. I, I knock stuff around till I figure it out, and, and I get a lot of pleasure in sort of sparing people that same intimidation and that same pain and just yeah. try and give a soup-to-nuts approach to, to how you get something done and, 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 and making people understand how easy it can be. Boy, you know, you nailed it when you said, you know, you spend a lot of time knocking things around and poking and prodding and trying to find out how this stuff works best. That's the story of my life, man. I mean, you know, <laughs> if you're not a hacker in this business, I mean, you have, you're at a serious disadvantage. Uh, and, th- and believe it or not, you know, we, we have these, what you read is the polished article, you know, but you don't see the hours of trial and tribulation and trying this and trying that and, and, and testing things that goes on. And the on. whole day of worrying, hey, maybe this won't actually work after all, and then you figure it out. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I'm going to have to give back my advance kind of thing. Yeah, the great thing is just giving people uh, exactly what you said, the whole soup to nuts thing without uh, 
without all those trials and tribulations in the middle. It's true. Yeah, so, we were, end up saving people a lot of wasted time. And, and emotional energy to an extent, <laughs> too. That's right. And at least I like to think that's the value we provide writing Absolutely. these articles and doing these talks. Absolutely. So how much work have you done with XML other than through radio.net? I mean, working with XML directly using XPath or, or the DOM or, or anything like that? Actually, very little. Um, <laughs> one of my favorite things that's what about I'm finding .net. out. Say again? That's, that's what I'm finding out. Most people are, are at that level. Well, I, again, one of my favorite things about .NET and, and, and the framework is um, how it really abstracts that stuff in, into object models and, and whatnot so that you don't have to get down into the, the nitty-gritty of the tags and the XPath expressions. And, right. Uh, you know, I do talks on the XML features of ADO.NET, and I'm very happy to tell the audience right at, that, at the beginning that I'm not an XML guru, and I'm definitely not an XSLT guru. Right. That's not where I want to spend my time. Right. What I like to do is use the features in the framework and then take a look at the XML that it's generated right. just so I have an intellectual sort of satisfaction that everything worked the way it should. Yeah. But if I don't have to get my hands dirty in there, I'm more than happy. Now, it's very valuable, though, to have at least somebody on your staff who understands the, the XML, the ins and outs, so if you ever have a glitch... Uh, you know, then you can, then you're well equipped to figure it out. But, uh, the beauty of running your own company. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) You can delegate that stuff. But yeah. I would say, though, that one thing that I think is going to be very, very important in the future to know, and I'm talking about all developers, is just the basic structure of schemas, Mm -hmm. of XSD schemas, and, and what they are, and how to read them as well as how to, uh, write them and generate them, and what are the features that are available. Because I think, XSD schemas is sort of the uh, the data contract of the future. You know that uh, when we when we integrate with even if we're not using web services, if I'm going to send you some data, you're going to want to know what format it's in. So if you just include an XSD, I can interpret that data more easily. And .NET, of course, you know is XSD centric. Um, you can build data sets from XSD files and things. Very much so, and they can even be fully expressive of the parent-child relationships in the data set, if you've got more than one table, the primary keys, the foreign keys, and all that stuff. And it's wonderful to be able to pass that to other platforms that may have nothing to do with .NET or Microsoft at all and know that as long as somebody, a developer on that side, and the code that they wrote is is savvy to what's going on inside those schemas, that really the whole all the rules of your database can be conveyed to a completely foreign platform. Awesome thing. How much work have you done with uh, data binding? Um, quite a bit, quite a bit. And, uh, you know, the the way things kind of work is I'm not, you know, I myself am not doing tons and tons of production coding. I, I tend to do the stuff that, that goes into the articles and the talks. The but test I try harnesses. And, I try and do show and tell with my folks when that's done, and they try and mainstream it into what we're doing code-wise. And um, we've yep. used data binding to great success in in a few different applications. Oh, that's great. We like it quite a lot. So uh, can you tell people about the differences in data binding in general between connected model uh, binding versus disconnected model binding? What, what, what are the benefits of using disconnected data with binding? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think about data binding, it kind of has a stigma to it, right? Because we go all the way back. For those of us who who were who were around in those days, we go all the way back in our mind to like version three of Visual Basic, and the way that its data binding worked, which was to take controls and basically bind them directly to fields in the physical tables in your database. And while that kind of worked out nicely in terms of saving you some work, um, it really didn't translate very well into a multi-tiered model of developing software because basically you were taking your front tier and binding it directly uh, to the database tier, which which eventually really became a no-no, really became lose kind control. Of ethic, eth- an ethical transgression in terms of writing <laughs> your code, right? Well, you really lose control over the validation. Absolutely, absolutely. There's there's not a whole lot of room to have your own business logic layer if your if your GUI is talking directly to the database. Right. So what happened was, you know, people threw that threw that aside and and did a lot of hand rolled code and you saw a lot of people writing the same kind of code over and over and over again 
to get the data sort of out of the text properties of text boxes and back into the fields and you know or into properties of a class and that kind of thing. The great thing about um, the sort of mainstream way of working with ADO.net is that you tend to use data sets and data sets are disconnected. So um, the binding model works in such a way where you're not binding to the database, you're binding to the data set. And right. the data set is as accessible to your middle tier as it is to your GUI. Um, so using the facilities of binding does not preclude also having a nicely structured multi-tiered architecture. And that's why, it, that's why it's so nice. Um, in addition to that, it, uh, it supports a really elegant way of working, not just with tables or with views in a database, but even being able to bind in a very sophisticated way to stored procedures. So oh, that's the, interesting. Yeah. So, so tell me about that. The things that we learned that were really important to do, use stored procedures, use the parameters in stored procedures. We can still do that and work with binding at the same time. The, uh, the gist of it is that when you add a parameter object to the parameters collection, of an ADO.NET command object. Uh, there's a there's a bunch of different um, bunch of different overloaded methods uh, versions of the add method, but one of them lets you specify uh, a a stored procedure parameter that the ADO.NET parameter object is being bound to, and also lets you specify a source column in the data set. So effectively what you're doing is taking a column in your data set and binding it to a parameter in your stored procedure. And because of the way data sets work, where they uh, manage four different command objects, one for update, one for insert, one for delete, one for selecting, when you call the update method on a data adapter, what happens is the appropriate stored procedure is being called and the appropriate parameter value is being passed through the binding mechanism. And all that work that we got used to doing in uh, ASP Classic and VB6 using ADO Classic, where we kind of had to loop through and call the appropriate stored procedure once for each uh, row in the record set that might have changed and where we had to load up all those parameter values manually. Yeah. That's all gone. That's all done automatically. But the nice thing to know is that it's actually still happening in the background. Right. Okay. So instead of, you're not just getting the convenience, but you're still using the same mechanism you would be using if you were doing it. You're just not having to write it yourself. Correct. Yeah. And by the way, if you prefer to write it yourself, that's absolutely still an option. Yep. Yep. So nothing's being taken away from you. And the stuff that's being given to you, rather than just looking good in a demo, um, is production quality stuff. Very cool. And that's why that that to me that's the hallmark of 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 .NET and 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 the the, the teeth that gives your develop your development prowess um, <laughs> over some of the comparable technologies that we had in the Visual Studio six generation of tools. And that's why it's going to save you a shitload of time and money uh, embracing .NET over other things because. That con that level of that high level of uh, programmability and functionality is just not there in other platforms. Agreed. And again, you have that situation where so many people are basically reinventing that you know that same data access wheel that right. we've all been doing even before Visual Basic came out, and we were doing X-based programming or whatever That's you right. might have been doing in those days. I mean, everybody had their own framework and their own library for dealing with updates, inserts, deletes, and navigation, and generating screens, right? Yeah. doesn't matter what environment. Well, if you have facilities that actually work so that you don't have to write it yourself, and people tend to use it, then you go from application to application, there's just that much less opportunity right. for error. Yeah. And, uh, and also a, a great degree of affinity between different people's code. Yeah. Right. Um, rather than everybody having their own, their own framework. Right. It's a standard. For getting things done. So the first, the first question that pops into your mind, if this is the first exposure you've had to ADO.net is, well, that seems too high level. It's probably not going to give me enough control, but, uh, au contraire, <laughs> you have a lot of control over what happens. In that now I gotta admit the data adapter is pretty high level. It's like black box ish, but if you understand what it does, uh, then it's easy to deal with. And if you uh, you know you set the right properties, such as 
continue update on error and deal with the errors consistently in a good way, uh, you have a lot of control. I agree. Yeah. I mean, what you have to look at the data adapter as is, is a, is a traffic cop that's managing four command objects and, uh, and also a, a, in effect a forward only read only cursor that it's then piping into the data set. Right. You can go ahead and do that yourself if you want to. But if you look at how it's architected and you look at what it does, you realize it's not really taking liberties and doing anything that you probably wouldn't be doing yourself if you exactly. wrote the code by hand. And that yeah. it that that's where the integrity comes from. Hey, are you interested in how web services stacks up to remoting, stacks up to a custom sockets-based server solution? Well, at Dev Connections in New Orleans, May 6th through 9th, I'm going to be doing a full-day post-conference session where I'm going to write that code right in front of your eyes, and we're going to compare the performance versus the productivity, and uh, we'll find out exactly what the skinny is uh, using all three of these different technologies in the same application to do the same thing. Now, we're going to basically be returning a data set from a web service. We're going to be returning it through a remoted uh, business object and we're going to be returning it through a socket server. If that's something that interests you, come on down to Dev Connections, New Orleans, May 6th through 9th, 2003. Go to www.devconnections.com. Hey, now let's get back to our show. We're talking with Andrew Brust about data sets and typed data sets. Coming right up on .NET Rocks. So I've heard a bit of talk about um, store procedures and whether or not they're, it's worth doing store procedures anymore, believe it or not. Um, because we were trying to save CPU cycles and save time before where now the machines are powerful enough to handle it. I've heard that argument. I've heard also heard the argument that doing store procs um, makes it much more inflexible, even though... Uh, that's in due in part to the security model, which uh, security is always a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, what's wh what's the deal? I mean, what where do you fall on that on that side? I mean, is it just is it is it just as good to do SQL statements with parameters directly? I yeah, I I am definitely of the school of thought that uh, that says using stored procedures is just uh, almost uh, dogmatically the right thing to do. Okay, um, I've you know, as soon as I got, uh, as soon as I got acquainted with SQL Server back in, gee, I guess that was version 4.2 on a project that I was involved with probably about 10 years ago. Um, and, and I was sort of shepherded in the ways of, of, uh, building applications using stored procedures. Okay. I really saw the value. And there's been, there's certainly been a number of, counter arguments since then. I mean, once once we got into the neighborhood of being able to build business logic in a middle tier, there were plenty of folks saying, look, we don't need to put that stuff in stored procedures because we can put it in our middle tier components and let our components take care of um, that, you know, implementing the abstraction. Right. Um, here's the way I look at it. To me, it's not even about performance. And performance is an important part because the queries in the stored procedures get pre-compiled and in your code, they don't. But to me, it's just about encapsulation, right? Okay. Before you even get to the code, you should be presenting a, a layer or a wrapper around your table such that people don't have to be uh, intimately familiar with your normalized schema. Right. They should just be able to call something and uh, you know get something into the database or get something out of the database. And if you want to change that schema around, that's your business, but you can still support that same interface. So what about the flexibility and productivity argument? You know, that uh, it, just before I can even do anything, I have to build the right store procedures, and if I want to do something just a little bit different, now i got to make another store procedure, et cetera. And, you know, you have systems that typically have four or 500 procs uh, become a management nightmare. I mean, what's uh, what do you say to that argument? 
uh, I would say no matter where you're going to put that logic, be it on the database or be it in the middle tier, and uh, honestly, you want to have a delineation of what goes where. You want some basic, very data-oriented stuff in the right. database and, and the real business logic you do want in the middle tier. But the point is, no matter where you're going to put that logic, you're still going to have that management problem. Okay. So moving stuff out of the database and into your, <coughs> into your components is not going to be the silver bullet for curing um for curing that uh, that maintainability issue. The other thing is you got you got to get ready for Yukon, okay? Now it's right. not like it's going to be out in a couple of months, but Yukon, which is the the code name for the next version of SQL Server, we've been talking a lot about that here. is is going to give you the ability to make those stored procedures uh, themselves be written uh, in .NET languages. Right. So now a lot of your arguments, your pro arguments for getting stuff out of the database and into the middle tier, those kind of go away because the expressiveness of the language that admittedly you don't have in Transact SQL, you're going to be able to put on the database side if you want to. Um, and I'd hate to see, you know, and I'd hate to see an application that had so much logic on the middle tier, and then Yukon comes out, and suddenly you're rethinking that whole strategy. So I think you have to always be looking forward to the next generation yeah. of the products that you're using to make sure that they won't cause such a radical change in your worldview that you're going to have to totally re-architect your apps. And by the same token, you, do, you want to warn people against uh, just recompiling their business logic as store procedures. Uh, you know, uh, oh, I agree a hundred percent. That's a I, cautionary tale we like to tell here as well. Yeah, no, I, I should mention actually that a fellow named Bill Zach, um, uh, Stephen Forte, who you mentioned is my co-regional director in New York right. and New Jersey, and myself, uh, the three of us are going to be writing a book on Yukon for Great. Microsoft Press, and uh, we anticipate a big, a big issue is that giving folks the power to write stored procedures in .NET languages is going to tempt some people to put everything in, everything there. And of course, that's going to be, that's going to be a ridiculous abuse. Right. I totally agree. So just like any new piece of, you know, any new piece of capability with that capability comes responsibility. It's like you don't, you know, you don't want to go overboard using inheritance just because we have inheritance now. You inheritance want the flexibility, hell. but you got to, you got to really take your mission very seriously. I think uh, w one of the one of the fundamental things that I like to say in my classes and when I speak is that you know in .NET we get rid of DLL hell, but we get a few new hells, and some of those hells include inheritance hell, and uh, docking hell is a great one I like to show in in Visual Studio .NET. Docking hell can happen if you start moving things around. <laughs> <laughs> Um, database table normalization hell is one that we've had even before, uh, but it's in, it's related to inheritance hell. I'm sure you know that, mm -hmm. and uh, and this is just another one that could happen. You know, Yukon uh, hell. <laughs> we'll have to be careful, and we'll I also would 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 warn people away from thinking that just because this capability is coming, that means Transact SQL is is a piece of junk and. And, and not worthy of their time. I would be very surprised if Transact SQL went away. I would be very surprised, actually, if it, if it lessened in importance. And what you have to realize about Transact SQL is while it's not a great language for doing procedural programming, it is a much better language for doing the kinds of declarative programming yes. that you typically have to do when you're dealing with database operations. Yeah, very so true. It's important to realize that... Uh, that a mixture of the of of the .NET oriented languages and something like Transact SQL, which which whose whole grammar and syntax is is premised on the entities that exist in a database, that that has huge value as well. So, uh, Andrew, what do you think about type data sets? And um, specifically, I I love type data sets uh, when I build them from XSDs for web services and passing you know small pieces of data that are easy to define but i'm having a difficulty justifying using type data sets in in a situation where the database is in a state of flux and uh, the, the schema is changing a lot what do you think about that um that that's sort of an interesting scenario that you brought up i i just i mean the whole idea of them i i, I really must admit i've i've fallen in love with because 
you know, of course, what's going on, although you may not see it unless you hear hit that magic uh, uh, show, show all, all files, files button yeah. in the Solution Explorer in Visual Studio.net. But of course, what's going on when you when you create a strongly typed data set is that there's a there's a class getting generated for you either in VB or in C sharp, depending on which language you're working with. And effectively, as you build your database or as you you build the schema for your data set, I should say. Um, an XSD schema is getting generated that encap that 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 uh, that encodes all of the details of that schema, and a and a class is getting generated that in effect builds an object model around your schema, and you know that's wonderful for a whole host of reasons. I mean, the, to me, the best reason is you're there hitting, you're there typing code, and you, you type the name of your data set, and you hit the period, and the IntelliSense list pops up, and you've gotten that list. Right. Among other things, you've got all your field names in. No it. magic names in quotes. Yeah, exactly. So instead of using uh, instead of using strings and uh, maybe putting a typo in that field name and finding out about it at runtime, um, you get that you get that sort of instant gratification that we've all uh, come to know and love that IntelliSense yeah. gives you, and you know you're spelling your field name right, and you're also, you know, depending on. Uh, whether you've got options strict on in Visual Basic or if you're using C Sharp, you're also going to get to, to understand some some realities about the, the data types behind those fields. Another uh, benefit, as Bill Vaughn pointed out in his great book on best practices in ADO.net and ADO, is the performance benefits because you're essentially, um, any time that you have to translate a field name or a table name through a string, that seriously slows performance down. Whereas if you can use an ordinal or even a type data set, uh, your performance is, is increased. <laughs> As we go from generation to generation of object model, Bill Vaughn loves to drive home the point that referencing a field as a string is That's a, true. Is That's a cardinal his, sin. It's one of his mantras. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or an ordinal sin, I should ordinal, say. Right. He likes to ordinal, use ordinal numbers to uh, <laughs> reference them instead. So that's... That's kind of a funny aside. Yep. But yeah, no, I just, I think there's a lot of elegance to it. And, you know, there was almost a, a cottage industry in some, in some third party tools that would take tables, uh, in your database. There was actually a product from Sheridan, but back before, um, before it was Infragistics called Class Assist. Right. And what that would actually do would be to look at tables in your database and build classes around them, build properties for each of the fields, and, start and procedures. build methods uh, yeah. around the update, insert, and delete, uh, and select operations. So effectively, uh, what you get with a strongly typed data set is a lot of that value, and, and you're getting it in the form of uh, a .NET class, which I think is, is quite nice. Now, in the scenario that you brought up, where you've got um, a database design that's kind of in flux, uh, I would say that in that case, strongly typed data sets may not be the best answer, and it may make more sense to use uh, a generic data set, which, you know, if, if your data structure stabilizes, you can always then take uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the attributes that you've put into that generic data set, spin it out with an XML, with the, the right XML schema method, spin it out to an XSD file and generate a strongly typed data set out of it at, at a later time. Right, right. And um, that's, you know, one of the other nice things is that all the code that you would otherwise have to have to write that would build the data relations and the constraints, which is a wonderful thing that data sets even support those in the first place. Right, right. Um, the, uh, the schema captures all of that and the strongly typed data set has it all in there. So before you've even put one piece of data in there, uh, you've already got tables. They happen to be empty, but you've got the tables. You've got the relations between the tables. You've got the constraints, the uniqueness constraints, the foreign yeah. key constraints, and whatnot. I, I think it's it's a really nice piece of architecture. But like anything, if you get, if you get carried away with it to the point where you're, you know, dogmatically using it in each and every case, you know, right, right. You get into trouble. Nothing. Uh, everything in moderation, right? Right. That's, exactly. That's a that's a good idea for your life as well as your code. I think. Absolutely. So, what if you have lots of uh, ADO code that you need to bring forward in .NET, and you maybe have some VB6 classes that return record sets, but yet you want to use them as data sets? What What's the approach? Do you go back into VB6 and try to return a data set? Do you convert it into a data set once you have a record set? 
What's the best approach for that that you've seen? Um, it's interesting you ask that question because back when .NET was still in beta, um, I was doing a talk on ADO.NET at a at a conference in New Orleans, and I was real interested to see how I could um, build stuff that was kind of ambidextrous. I wanted specifically to be able to build uh, .NET front-ends that could talk to ASPX pages uh, running on a server without having even to get into web services, but I also wanted to be able to build ASP pages that could return data that could somehow be consumed by a .NET front-end. Uh, yeah. Part of that was just intellectual curiosity, and part of it was that I realized that in some shops, right, it was probably going to be more probably going to be more uh, agreeable for folks to start using .NET either in the web space or in the Windows space and not both, and that there would need to be some interoperability. So long story short, there's yep. two ways to do it. Um, we were talking uh, at the beginning of, of our chat here about how even classic ADO had the ability to stream record sets back as XML. Right. So if a... Uh, if if a record set can be presented as XML and a data set or a data table within that data set can be presented as XML, then you can start imagining how with either some programmatic code or some uh, XSLT, Transforms, you right. could actually transform a record set into a data set just by working in the, in the XML uh, side of things. So on hmm. the classic ADO side, there's a, a save method on the record set that can uh, that can stream it out as XML. It can actually stream it out over HTTP or into a file. And then on hmm. the .NET side, there's a read XML method on the data set and a write XML method on the data set, right. which do pretty much uh, in an, they work in a pretty self-explanatory way. Yeah. So that's one way to handle it. But there's another way to handle it that I find almost nobody knows about. Okay. This one's pretty slick. If you use an uh, OLEDB data adapter, right. not a SQL data adapter, but an OLEDB data adapter, okay. it's, got, uh, it's got an overloaded version of the fill method where uh, you can supply an ADO classic record set as one of the arguments, and it will effectively read that directly into a data table whose name you supply as another argument. That's slick. And... Uh, so you don't even have to worry about creating a data reader or any command object to get that data out of anything. You're basically converting in one fell swoop a uh, uh, record set into a data table. Awesome. And of course, the wonderful thing about data sets is they can take some data from here and some data from somewhere else. So you can create a big data set, and it pulls part of its data in from SQL Server using a SQL data adapter, and then maybe it pulls some more stuff in um, using an OLEDB data adapter. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, that's being supplied by an ASP page right. uh, that's pulling, pulling that data out of you know something crazy like a JET database back on the server. Ooh, you said the, the buzzword. No, JET? Sorry. Yeah. I know that's that's the, the dirty word around is here. Is that where you push the eject button and <laughs> yeah, I go right. out the window? Well, no. After the harangue that Bill Vaughn did against Jet, uh, we we're pretty much conditioned to 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 throw up when we hear that word. We've all done that, but we know that Jet Jet hasn't completely gone away yet. Well, I guess you know Bill's point, and I I know even he would say this is that yeah, if you have approximately one user, uh, you know, on a desktop application that doesn't have to interact with anything, mm -hmm. Jet's great. Yeah, we used to. <laughs> I used to go around saying there's there's a point at which there's a number of users, there's a threshold number of users at which Jet databases start to become yeah, unreliable. That <laughs> threshold tends to be the number two. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so. People just look at you in shock when you say that. You know, how many users do you think Access would support? You know, two, <laughs> approximately two. But the ubiquity, the ubiquity of, of, of access or the ubiquity of office and thus access right. and the number of uh, departmental solutions which were crafted oh, God, in yeah. access mean that we still have this as a legacy issue. Right. Hey, Andrew, we have live on the phone from Brooklyn, New York, a caller, uh, Lenny Lobel. Hi, Lenny. You got Hi, a question there. for Andrew? Um, yeah, I was wondering if you could uh, advise as to the best approach to take to get OLAP data into a .NET application? 
Mm. Excellent question. Excellent question. Perhaps for some of the other folks, uh, also just providing a little background on what OLAP cubes are. Um, yeah, that's a good real idea. Real quick and dirty on that. Um, and that'll segue nicely into, um, into the answer to, to, to Lenny's question. Um, if you haven't played with OLAP and lots of people haven't, I would, um, I would really encourage you to do so. Basically what, what OLAP is about is drill down analysis on steroids. So rather than having to do the work through a relational database of bringing back a result set and then saying, hmm, here's something where I've used an aggregate function and, and summed up a bunch of stuff. For example, maybe I've summed up all the sales uh, in New York State, but now I'm interested in sort of drilling down and looking city by city. Um, of course, in a relational scenario, if you made that decision, then you'd have a second query to run in order to get the, the drill down information underneath that. The way OLAP databases work is the lowest level facts are in the OLAP cube, and the, a cube is sort of uh, analogous to a table. So you've got those low-level uh, numbers, and then all of the other levels, all the way up, the different uh, the different stops in your various dimensions. Maybe in a geography dimension, it's uh, along zip code, and then city, and then state, and then country, for example. Um, all of those are are either pre-calculated, or uh, the OLAP engine is able to go ahead and calculate those on the fly, but do it very, very efficiently because it doesn't have to worry about all the things that a relational database has to worry about, like indexing and joins and and stuff along those lines. So, so you'd say it's a sort of a, a sort of a three-dimensional view rather than a two-dimensional. How, yeah, how would um, that actually work? Actually, it can it can be a lot more than three dimensions. It can be up to sixty-four. So oh, you, can then, you can then start correlating things by saying, well, I want to see the total sales for uh, uh, these four zip codes over these three months in this particular year for people who have a bachelor's degree or higher. And so that is a value somewhere in the cube that sure. you can just pull out. Sure. I, again, either it's a value or it's a sum of a bunch of other values that are already there. Okay. And of course, if your whole job is just to sum up a bunch of values, that's not that's too easy. hard. Whereas if your job is to then sort of like start at the, at, do it in a top-down fashion and go below right. um, and do a whole bunch of relational querying to get that information, that's a lot more work. Interesting. So that's the value of OLAP. And the way prior to .NET you would deal with OLAP applications was to use a special uh, COM-based object model called ADOMD. The MD standing for multidimensional, which of course implies OLAP. So ADOMD was uh, a distant cousin to ADO. I mean, really, they they have very little to do with each other. Although ADO is a wrapper around OLADB, and ADOMD is a wrapper around an extension to OLADB called OLADB for OLAP. Okay. So okay, so we've got ADO.NET in the world of .NET. <laughs> Do we have an ADOMD.net? And, and unfortunately, the answer is no. Hmm. Um, I would expect that to change perhaps um, as we get closer to the Yukon time frame. I, sure. I don't know that for a fact, but I see that becoming a lot more likely because Yukon will be very tightly woven with .net. So in the interim period, which could be a while, what, what do you do? Well, there's a couple of things you can do. You can use ADOMD.net. Uh, excuse me, ADOMD in a .NET application because, of course, we have the com interop, right? For that matter, you can use classic ADO in a .NET application. So you can use ADOMD in a .NET application using the com interop the same way you would have used it in a VB6 application or a classic ASP application, for example. And basically, you've got an object model there, uh, where you've got this thing called a cell set, and a cell set is a lot like a record set in, in classic ADO, but rather than just having fields coming back, you have different axes coming back, you have positions along those axes, and then you've also got cells, and the cells are addressed kind of as an array, and that array may have two dimensions, three dimensions, or more dimensions, depending on how you've written your query. And your query is written in a language that's comparable to SQL but different, and that language is called MDX. So you can still do all those things. Now, hmm. 
there's a more there's a more interesting approach that I like from the .NET side of things, which is to use something called XML for analysis. Okay, so XML for analysis is effectively a SOAP wrapper uh, for ADOMD, and what you get is a web service, and the web service only has two methods on it. And one of those methods is called discover, and that's what you use to get all sorts of metadata about the cube. If you want to know what its dimensions are, what its measures are, what the levels of the dimensions mm -hmm. are, for example, you use the discover method. The other method is the execute method, and that's what you actually do to send an MDX query and get back the cell set. But the cell set, hmm. rather than coming back as an object, comes back as an XML document. And, uh, the SDK for XML for analysis that Microsoft has um, actually gives you an XSL style sheet that will take that XML that comes back and transform it into a pretty HTML table. And we can we we have the URL to that uh, XML for analysis posted on the .NET Rex website. Uh, so if you're listening out there, come come back to the website and check it out. Um, the, that SDK is really interesting because. Um, for folks who have worked with OLAP, you know that you get uh, an MDX uh, query application that comes with the OLAP client tools, and that uh, that application is actually written in VB6. Um, if you download the XML for Analysis SDK, you actually get a new version of that same application that uses uh, XML for Analysis instead of ADOMD to do the same queries. So, interestingly, hmm. that sample code is in VB6. It's not in .NET. Uh, it's not in VB.net, and it's not in C Sharp, but uh, but the concepts are portable. Very cool. And uh, Carl, I I have some code that I can contribute to this uh, excellent to this enterprise as well. That actually uh, takes some code that uh, a friend of ours named Yasser Shahud put together. Sure. Uh, to make sure that that web service that's implemented by XML for analysis is actually um, usable from the .NET side of things because it turns out it's not as simple as just setting up a web reference. Okay. Okay, because that was developed before Visual Studio .NET really got built up and out of beta. So. Okay. But all this stuff moving forward is going to become, uh, I believe, a lot more mainstream. XML for analysis has been uh, adopted by a number of OLAP vendors, not just Microsoft. So I think you're going to end up seeing it be a real industry standard. Um, and that kind of makes sense because the web service, uh, the web service trend, of course, is so popular among so many vendors. One little uh, footnote to this: you get a bonus by using XML for analysis. If Lenny's still there, I'm still here. here here's the bonus: you install all that on the server, and then the client simply needs a web service stack, a SOAP stack. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to deploy ADOMD out to your clients. Very cool. Um, and that makes setting up your and deploying your applications uh, much, much easier. Thank you for the question. Great. That was excellent. Well, thank you. That was some good information. All right, Lenny. Okay. Thanks. Have a good night. Thanks. You too. Take care. I'm continually amazed at the, uh, the success stories that we're hearing from our customers who take my VB.net masterclass, and uh, I just got a letter from a guy in New York City who took the class and uh, works for a financial company there, and because of the things that I taught him, the code that he could directly use from the class, they were able to write a, uh, an enormous .NET application from scratch, an internal application that they had been working on in uh, Java. They were able to complete it in three months from scratch in VB.net using about five or six guys. And uh, it's just another in a list of success stories, not just for .NET, but for Franklin's.NET. So if you're a VB6 developer and or you, you manage a bunch of VB6 developers, you work on a team, you really ought to talk to your boss about getting some training for .NET. Uh, at some point, friend, you're going to be throwing money away if you're not trained. You're going to be wasting time and money. So uh, check out our website at www.franklins.net and our offerings for .NET training. Now let's get back to our talk with Andrew Bruss. Uh, this is a fascinating talk for me. I hope you're enjoying it here on .NET Rocks. Uh, 
Um, what have have you seen the application data blocks that uh, Microsoft has put out? They're, they did one for data access. I've had I've had a quick look at that, and I know there's even more of those blocks coming out. Um, they're, yeah, there's they're some good stuff coming. Tending out. to be very popular. So, what do you think of that? What do you think in general about using other people's code? Well, I think um, there's a lot of people out there who are still most happy, sort of, you know, it goes back to what we were talking about before, right? Sort of yeah. Yeah. folks who like to invent their own frameworks and sort of build everything within those. I think the more frameworks, the more application blocks and so forth, the more patterns, the more uh, patterns and practices that might come out of the PAG group from Microsoft, the more of that stuff that's out there, if and only if the majority of the .NET developer community finds them useful and supports them and finds them, you know, integrious in terms of the way everything's implemented and architected, the more of that, the better. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. Even if, even if you don't use it per se right off the shelf, you can always look at it and, and learn from it. And uh, I found looking at commented code a very valuable tool in my education. I found the problem with commercial frameworks is that most of them have been kind of obscure solutions from third parties. Right. And I find that there's not a lot of value to any of these things if they don't have universal support. Very I think true. there's a lot of value of these uh, in these things being um, introduced and, and deployed by Microsoft itself. Well, that was the whole reason VB flourished is because of the support in the third-party community. Uh, there were other tools that were, you could argue, better, mm -hmm. you know? But uh, VB had so much support, that's why uh, more people knew it, more sure. people learned it, and that's why it flourished. That whole VHS versus Betamax kind of thing where, where technically beta was better, but everybody else was using VHS and you could trade tapes and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, that's that's a big important thing, and that's you know if we go back to those days when Borland was working on Delphi. Delphi, yeah. And none of us were really quaking in our boots about it, even though the code name was VBK for Visual Basic Killer. <laughs> that's right. We we all knew that the the sheer the sheer cohesiveness of the community around Visual Basic was was its strongest asset. What do you think um, of the VB community now? Are they still out there? Is there where are we? I think we're redefining ourselves because, you know, obviously with with the .NET framework having most of the most of the infrastructural guts and the language being more of a syntactical veneer on top of the framework, you know, our identity is shifting. It's not really around the Visual Basic language so much, although. You know, that's still, I find, the easiest way, the easiest tool I have for expressing an algorithm and getting some code written. But I will admit that I am starting to find uh, C-sharp uh, to, um, to be more and more enticing, is yeah. the word, perhaps. Yeah. Um, there's a nice purity to the language. I, I, I enjoy using it. Yeah. Um, I still consider myself, in a lot of ways, a visual basic programmer in a... <laughs> almost in a spiritual sense and that, <laughs> you know there's a lot yeah. of, there's a lot of sort of low level stuff that I can do in C sharp and for that matter in VB.net you can do in .net that, now yeah that that I tend not to be too interested in um it's and and I don't mean anything disparaging by that sure. I just mean that that the kind of programming I like to do and and business wise the kind of programming I like uh, us to work on in terms of projects is at a higher level than that yeah so I think what we're getting used to, what 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 what's happening to this community is that we're looking at .NET and we're saying there's all this stuff that we can do. And you know, in the days of Visual Basic before .NET, I tried to learn every single thing there was to learn in the product. Right. Now what I'm getting used to is being humbled a little bit. Yeah, saying, absolutely. That's not really what I want to do here. <laughs> what I want to do here is know enough about the language and enough about the framework to get the same kinds of applications written that I got written before. Yeah. And it's interesting because there's going to be some folks who used to be the C++ guys and who are now per probably the C-sharp guys. Right. And, hey, I can write code in C-sharp as well, but there's still stuff that they're much better at than I am. 
And right. there's still stuff that I'm much better at than they are because they tend to be lower level programmers. They tend to work more in 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 the guts of things, and and I tend to work, and my my folks tend to work a little bit more at the level of the business logic and just getting that application and, and the that user interface, interface built. Yeah. Um, and I think you know we used to have a very uh, sort of physical barrier to to getting to that lower level stuff, right? It just, yeah, it yeah. wasn't terribly accessible to us unless, you know, we use tools like Spyworks and stuff to, yeah. to really reach that down. That was Dan there. Appleman's forte, is getting at exactly. that low level stuff. Exactly. So that delineation was a lot more obvious and a lot more physical than it is now. Yeah. So now I think what we're getting used to is is identifying the boundary there that's that's a softer boundary, but identifying it and 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 respecting it and sort of being okay with ourselves as saying we're not you know we're not going to be the the jack of all trades here, right. right I think v b programmers are waking up to the fact that they need to at least be able to read c sharp you know and it's not that difficult to understand the basic syntax the syntactical differences. And, you know, how to identify a property, how to identify a function or a constructor. Sure. Um, those kinds of things are critical. Um, because, you know, a lot, face it, I mean, a lot of the cool stuff that you can do in .NET is written in articles that are done in C Sharp. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, you can run it through a VB, C Sharp to VB converter. That's a very good tool to do, to use. Um, but also, I, I tend to notice that a lot of C Sharp code isn't commented. Is it just me or is it... Uh, you know, if if the C sharp programmers are listening out there, you're writing articles and writing things online. Put some comments in there. So uh, we want to see world. some green. Yeah, we want to see some green. You got it. <laughs> I, yes, I I would argue that's not so much a language feature as a cultural feature. I, I hear you. I totally but, hear you. But yes, I agree. But, so I I do the same. I I believe the same thing about C sharp. We've poked at uh, you know the C programmers here on the show, and in all seriousness, folks. You know, it's all just for show business. Don't send me letters and hateful emails. Uh, we're just trying to stir up some uh, stir up some hate and discontent. But um, the reality is that uh, C Sharp has a is a great language, and it and it's miles ahead of C plus plus. I think it's miles ahead of Java as well. And uh, I don't think that a VB programmer should necessarily go to C Sharp because they they need they th they have to think they're getting something that they're not getting in VB. But that said. There are a couple of times a year where I have to do something in C sharp just because I don't have unsigned integers or uh, you know or whatever. Mm -hmm. But uh, but those situations are rare. I agree. You know, I think I think uh, if you want to be a if you want to be running a shop that's a that's a that's an all encompassing .NET solution shop, you're going to need some C need sharp both. expertise. You're going to need both. So, and certainly the ability to read the code is important. I find sort of the middle of the procedure, the the middle of the code blocks, the languages are almost exactly the same. Yeah, right. So it's 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 a matter of getting used to the to the, the constructors the, the, the and the syntactic glue of, of yeah of, of of stamping out the blocks and the procedures and so forth. Right. You know, I I forced myself for one of my talks at VS Live this year to do all the code in C sharp. Huh. You know, and it's very difficult, right? Because we're always right. under deadlines, you know, especially especially with conferences, you know, our stuff, <laughs> my stuff true. at this point, I'm getting to be at the point where I'm chronically late. And I'm like, uh, you know, my, my famous uh, excuse to myself is I'll do it next time because I'm right. behind schedule on this one. <laughs> and I just decided, you know, there's never a good time to do this, so I'm going to do it now. And what I find, of course, is it's, it's a very humbling experience. You're trying to write the simplest thing and... The first time you compile it, you will come up with umpteen errors, and right, it, is, right. it is just terrible. But getting through that experience and then getting to the point where you know everything compiles nicely, and let's say you're even writing the code right the first time, um, right. once you get there, um, yeah. it, it, it's it's a good thing to it's a, it's it's some good fire to have in your belly. Uh, Andrew, um, we got a few more minutes here. I want to talk to you about some of the glitches that I've found when using uh, data binding, and especially with Windows Forms. And uh, first of all, just to say that data binding in ASP.NET is not data binding in Windows Forms. The two are totally different things. They're very different. In yeah. ASP.NET, binding is simply used to get data into the controls, to get it converted to HTML, to get it out to the client. There isn't a, uh, you know, a a reference that's maintained to the you know between an object and a data set 
a UI object in the data set while the user is looking at it in the browser. Um, as a matter of fact, by the time it gets to the browser, by the time you're looking at it, your program's no longer running, so uh, it's a completely different thing. I want to talk about um, Windows Forms data binding. And I've had some glitches, especially using a list box uh, and text boxes. If I bind a list box to a data table, and then I use the data bindings collection to add a binding to the text property of each text box um, to that, sa uh, that same data table, the, re the effect is when I go from record to record in the list box, the details show up in the text box, and that's very cool. Right. A couple of problems I've had with that. First of all, if you set the data source property first, and then you set the display member and the value member properties, uh, in between there, the, the, the selected index change event fires three or four times before your form actually comes up. And this is if you do it in a form load. Um, so I always end up having to write a Boolean flag uh, and even even moving things around doesn't work. It still fires. I, I set a boolean flag to true after form load is done, and then uh, I only handle the code in that event uh, once form the form is loaded. So that's one workaround I've had to do. Another thing is that if you're bound like that, and you have an, a button to save changes, let's say, and you're going to call it data adapters update method to pass your data set in, uh, and save the changes, or you're going to call the fu function in a business object, whichever you're going to do. Um, you have that data set. If you, you, you change a value in a text box, and if you don't move off that row or do something else and, uh, uh, you know, and, and end current edit, which I'll, which you can tell us about, um, the data doesn't change in the data set because of the nature of the list box and the nature of, the text boxes which don't commit the change after you move off the text box field you know that can be a, a surprising shock to uh, developers I know it was to me and it, it's just because your expectation is that the data is going to update if you change it in the text box and without having to somehow engage the data set to take a look at the value in the text box and commit it into the data set it's it's not changed. So the end result is when you press the save changes button, looks like the change was saved, but it wasn't. Right, right. I I struggled with that. Um, I wrote an article for Visual Studio Magazine on .NET data binding, and I was still working with uh, in Windows Forms, and I I was still working with uh, the uh, I guess it was beta two at that point uh -huh. when I was writing the article, and I was certain it was it was a bug. And in fact, if you read the article, um you'll actually see that I referenced it that way. And I said, I expect that when the the RTM bits come out, um, this is going to be resolved. And uh, that's because uh, I needed to uh, do uh, what we call a little paradigm shift there, and so does everybody else. The way .NET thinks about the binding operation of editing a record is that you really need to explicitly tell it that you're done. And right. that's what that's what the end current edit method on the, on the binding manager base object is all about. Now, what happens is if you as you as you implied earlier, if you navigate to a different record, um, uh, that will be done implicitly for you in the right. background. So the so, the kludge has been to move off the record and then move back. Move to, off and then come back, but. Well, what if you've only uh, really, got one record? You know, you know that, you one know. could make the argument that even in, in the case of navigating, you should really get in the habit of calling end current edit when Before it's appropriate to do so. When you know you're done editing the record. And when you do that, not only will the data in the data set be updated, but the modified status of the row, the data row object, will be set appropriately right. such that when you call the update method on the data adapter object, it will know that that row changed and it will know to call the update command for that specific row. Very true. And uh, so I would guess getting in the habit of doing that before I do a save, you know, uh, which is where I chose to do it. Now, what are we talking about for code here? I, if I can remember correctly, you have to create a binding manager base object. Right. Well, get the that binding from manager base object context. Is the binding manager base object is actually being, you know, created. Um, 
it's there whether you like it or not. I, but, I mean a variable. I didn't mean an ob- the object. Yeah, is the there. Right you need a to reference do, to of it. Of course, is exactly what you're saying. Create that. Create that object. Uh, create that object variable and point it uh, to the binding manager base uh, object of the form. Then once you do that, you can explicitly um, do things like uh, like call the end current edit method and, and so forth. Okay. So how how does uh, somebody do this? Do you have any code samples that you could uh, just tell us how to, to end the current edit? Yeah, it's actually uh, pretty pretty straightforward once somebody said, uh, you know, solve the puzzle for you. And basically, there's a, there's a, there's a built-in uh, function that you can call called the binding context function. That takes um, two parameters. There's, I mean, there's a few different overloaded methods, of, uh, versions of the method, but you can, okay. uh, one, one version is to pass it your data set, and uh, as a string, a particular data table in that data set. And that returns and a binding manager base? It, that's exactly right. So yeah. if it I returns said... returns a binding manager base object, which um, is associated with that specific data table. And then you can start calling the various methods on the binding manager base object. So I could call uh, end current edit before I do a save on that. Yeah, as a as a as a very representative example. Okay. You could start calling. You could uh, also start referencing the position property. Um, oh, cool. Or manipulating the position property to go to a specific uh, specific record. And uh, believe it or not, there's even an event that you can um, that you can trap. Which wow! Is so a this is a position changed event. That's a very good thing to have um, when you're doing data binding, just as maybe a module level variable with events. Keep it around so that you can manipulate it. That's exactly correct. With events would give you access to that position changed uh, event, which can do all sorts of wonderful things. So that way, if the user uh, you know, whether there's code that's uh, navigated you or the user has done something by like clicking on a, on a row in a grid or something, your code can know about it and, and react to it, you know, in a, in, a, in a proactive way. That's awesome. Rather than being caught by surprise. So, yeah. Good point. Andrew, any last uh, comments you want, or wisdom you want to impart to the listening audience before we say goodnight here? Well, I would just say that everyone should uh, be on the lookout. We're less than a month away for the final release of, of 1.1, uh, version 1.1 of the .NET framework and uh, the next version of Visual Studio .NET. And while, you know, I'll be honest, there's nothing earth-shattering in that. It brings a nice level of maturity to the stuff that we've been using for the last year. There's some nice fit-and-finish stuff in there. And I think that really is the hallmark of, of .NET being here and being a real force to to be reckoned with in the software development world. Um, it's been kind of a tough year economically for the industry, uh, but we've got a great platform here, and it's it's only going to grow. Very good. Andrew Brust, thank you very much for joining us tonight and uh, helping us out with data binding and all that great stuff. You've really been a, a big help, and I'm sure a lot of people appreciate you spending the hour here. Hey, thank you. Have a great night. And, you know, I'm sorry there were no uh, New York sound effects, no sirens <laughs> going by the windows, but uh, we had right. a nice quiet night here in Greenwich. Right, watch out for low-flying planes. <laughs> <laughs> all righty. Okay, good night. Good night.